nice to actually be in person. Honestly, I, I can't. I just can't do the zooms, man. I'm sick of it. I hate it. And like the fake backgrounds and then no one's comfortable. And then like, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? And the connection errors. And then like the cinematics of it. Cause even if you're in front of someone like this in a real life, it's just more fun. It's just more fun. I, it's not fun sitting in front of my computer. Yeah. And I think it it really adds to the conversational aspect too, rather than it being like interview. I get so sick oh of being God. asked the same questions. It's nice to just talk about stuff. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's jump into it then. So, right. Ashley Proctor, the great benefactor of co-working in Canada. <laughs> one of the OGs in the scene, in the studio, and it's awesome to have you here. Um, so, so thankful that you were able to take time and come and join me for this episode of the Start Well podcast slash the gathering podcast. Um, we are going to talk about a bunch of stuff. This will be published, uh, through the gathering podcast by Start Well, which really is a series that, uh, we've launched to, um, kind of unearth a lot of tips, tricks, anecdotes from brilliant minds such as yourselves. Um, about everything to do with like emergent workplace culture or the current milieu we work in. Um, we have a lot of clients at Startwell, uh, you know, who support other teams. Mm -hmm. And so in digging into our roster of customers, but also the people that are contacting us, um, inquiring about ways that we can help uh, them do that work, you know, I kind of said, well, we need more than just to be able to place people with meeting space because we do more than that when people are here. And so this series is really about dialogue that can, you know, unearth uh, helpful information for those folks in the work that they're doing. Thanks. So, yeah. So that's the, some background on this chat. Um, but let's kick it off with a little bit of history, if you're down for that. I know you talk about this all the time, but the background of how you got into what you see as co-working, because um, you were one of the earlier... Uh, entrepreneurs in co-working in Toronto, definitely, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, so give us some background. What got you going on like in, on that first project, the first co-working space that you started? Yeah, the first one I started was actually for the students at the Ontario College of Art and Design. And that was a project we launched in about 2002, 2003. And the space opened first in Kensington Market in 2004. Um, only a couple of months before the Center for Social Innovation opened up in Toronto. So it was right as co-working was sort of born in the city. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that that project, so I was working for the student union at the time. That's, that's how I got involved with it. But I think that project really formed uh, or informed uh, co-working for me moving forward in the sense that it was a collaborative project from the start. And I was a representative as a, as a member of the student union in carrying out the wishes of the community, this larger community of all of the students at OCAD mm -hmm. who had had their external space taken away from them through the Superbuild reconstruction project, so renovation project funded by the government. And um, we decided as students to self-fund it and, and run our own space, which is external from the campus, external from the school and any kind of oversight in that sense. 
and really make it a space uh, that met the needs of the community. And they asked for exhibition space. They asked for retail space. They asked for gallery space. They asked for studio and production space. They asked for co-working space in its earliest days. I mean, we were barely working from laptops. Um, so it was uh, it was the earliest versions, um, I think, that we could have done with the right uh, timing for technology. Um, but that community-led design and that co-creation is mm -hmm. actually what, for me, is the essential part of co-working that I hope we carry through and has carried through my nine other projects over the years. But I think that is actually where all of my thoughts about co-working come from, is really serving the needs of the people rather than a, a top-down or if you build it, they will come approach. Yeah, and it's really interesting to kind of look back, I think, on foundational kind of, you know, motivations for creating these spaces in those days. I was one of the first tenants at Center for Social Innovation on Spadina. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where I first kind of got the vibe. I kind of knew, I mean, the the, the concept of people coming together to create a space that's conducive to their collective needs and, and work and not just efficiency, but social dynamics as mm -hmm. well. You know, I'd experienced in working before that, you know, uh, in New York, in Africa, and, and even just like, it's funny because even at McGill, like the same kind of thing, I was involved in, in some some projects like that, uh, mainly in the arts communities in the plateau, uh, not just McGill students, but like people coming together to even take over like a nightlife establishment on a weekly roster to figure out how to share as artists performing space, you know? Yeah. So it's some it's it's funny because I think what's interesting as I look back on this stuff is that, you know, co working capital C the word, you know, is in the zeitgeist today, uh, mainly thanks to a lot of advertising rev you know, advertising money from big brands in the last five Ten years, mm -hmm. um, I think people like WeWork have advertised uh, co-working to be something and branded it to be something that the consumers maybe know, um, but the concept that we d define it by is is perhaps unknown. And uh, and even just before we jumped on the mic, you were telling me an anecdote. What, what was that story? Oh, we're talking about oh, this is twenty years in now, almost twenty years of me explaining to folks what co-working is or what the intention is, and. I met a fellow traveler in Memphis last week, and he asked me what I do. I said, it's all, I do a lot of things around eight organizations. They're all related to co-working. And he said, what is co-working? And I thought, God, it's 20 years now I've been explaining what co-working is to people. How do I play this? You know. Mm -hmm. And I thought for him, I'll go with the mainstream. So I asked him if he'd ever heard of WeWork. Um, he goes, yeah, I work from a WeWork. And it... <laughs> It blew my mind that, you know, actually it doesn't blow my mind. Um, it just reinforced what I what I come to know and feel about WeWork and how far they've distanced themselves from co-working intentionally now um, since they trashed its name in the media. <laughs> they might have brought it to the forefront, but they also kind of gave it a bad rap with how it got so closely tied to their commercial real estate endeavors and investments. And, and that's not what co-working is about. Co-working is solving a problem for a lot of folks and, and it does it in a lot of different ways. And um, I think the one thing that is consistent between genuine co-working communities is that collective mindset mm -hmm. that, you know, working together to build something better than we could achieve on our own, um, the collaboration over competition. And I think that's really the only way forward on a lot of fronts, the way we work, the way we live. It has to be a collaborative approach. Yeah, it is so funny that like, 
Firstly, that that would happen, that someone, yeah, in a space that's been sold as, you know, probably had a banner on the front of the building saying, you know, co-working seats, offices available, mm-hmm. um, wouldn't wouldn't kind of know what the, the word means. The, yeah, I mean, like, it's funny because we're, we're working with a lot of different types of organizations as customers, as clients, as friends, partners um, at Startwell to facilitate that exploration. Organizations now saying, okay... We have to come up with hybrid, you know, plans that don't involve a unitary chunk of space to accommodate, you know, the workplace for all people. People are remote, especially in Toronto, the GTA. You have distributed teams by nature of the uh, urban topography. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of our listeners who are unfamiliar with our city, uh, just a little bit of backdrop, which is this is kind of like mega city that got formed uh, decades ago by unenlightened you know city councillors that kind of clumped a number of cities together into a single city administratively but it also meant that that centralized uh, perhaps the toronto urban core's importance for organizations in the greater area um and that meant that like you know toronto became this kind of uh, nine to five city or continued becoming growing to be a nine to five city where commuter traffic demanded a little bit of nightlife post, you know, like dinner venues post work, but then everyone kind of had this urban flight in the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like a problem with a, maybe a lot of North American cities in general uh, that don't have the piazzas and gelaterias, you know, for everyone to relax in the evening, all the familias to get to know each other. Um, but anyway, so we live in this big city that was pre-pandemic, you know, a commuter city, and then the commuting stopped. Mm-hmm. And then commercial vacancies increased. And, you know, 2019, um, we had less than 2% commercial, well, let's call it office real estate availability. Mm-hmm. Offices were packed. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone was oversubscribed. Uh, and then also us having this, like, uh, innovation ecosystem in the city. And even as early as 2019, we were dealing with a lot of startups that were uh, well-funded and uh, and revenue-positive even companies looking to have a kind of a northeastern North American footprint. Mm-hmm. Uh, and post-Trump, a lot of money moved up here where people are like, oh, America is too scary for us. Like, it's just uncertain. And for globally relevant companies, they were saying Canada is a safer, more civil society to be based. So Toronto got a, a kind of a boom in 2019. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So everything kind of like went crazy with the pandemic. And now we're sitting at, it's funny because every every kind of commercial real estate, quote unquote, professional that I speak to, whether they're uh, at a REIT or they're brokers or work at brokerages or landlords of some sort um, or property managers even, they don't kind of understand what's happening uh, to their property and in the market and the, the, the drop off in demand. But uh, I talk to people and, and they're, Confused about two things. I'd love your, your take on this. So one thing is the vacancy rate, right? So a lot of people are saying in commercial real estate that, okay, we've got about a 20%, you know, vacancy rate in downtown Toronto. Um, but half of that's available through sublets. So they see that as an enticing way in for uh, tenants. And then on the other side, they're saying uh, we have underutilization, but that's not our problem. So from my perspective, there's about a 40% vacancy rate in Toronto because you've got a lot of leased floors that no one works at. They're ghost floors. Um, 
and they're not, you know, they might be being paid for until the lease is up and then those companies are gone. So we're almost heading into this kind of like what the industry would see as a crisis because you've got massive availability of real estate. Um, and, uh, and the only way it can become attractive according to conventional business is to drop prices. However, a lot of property can't do that. And a lot of um, small landlord property, the property like we're in, for example, even those 20,000 square feet, it'll continue at the same price for me to run. Uh, my landlord would rather demolish it, you know, if I couldn't pay the money. So it's very interesting. On one hand, you've got this like tons of sublets available. Uh, and I like counterbalancing that sublet availability with the race to the bottom in the commercial co-working operators or shared space vendors like WeWork and IWG. And then on the, the other side, you've got this issue of, of kind of stock coming on market. What are what what are your thoughts around this sort of stuff? I know that's a generalistic kind of question. Honestly, I think anytime the ground is shaking, it's a good thing. I think there are a lot of there's a lot of room for improvement in CRE. There needs to be a great shakeup, and people who typically maintain the access or hold access to these kinds of spaces need to be shaken up a little bit too. Mm -hmm. um, I think in the same way that people, workers, are starting to realize that the whole system of work is broken and demanding more and demanding better and better conditions and a better work-life balance. This isn't new to a lot of us co-working operators. We've been creating space for these folks for a long time. It feels like we're having a lot of the older conversations in the earliest days of the movement when we were realizing that this system isn't working for us anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, emerging from school and thinking of new ways of working and the way technology is shaping the way we've been working over the course of the first 20 years of my career has greatly shifted. Um, folks who are just, folks that are hanging on are so far beyond. I think we had a bit of this conversation before too. It's, I mean, it's 50 years behind. It's not even a little slow. Yeah. You're it, talking about like we were, when we were speaking downstairs about off, off mic for our audience, uh, we were talking about how commercial real estate incumbents, you know, especially here in a city where the majority of the downtown real estate that's commercial is owned by REITs, you know, very long-term thinking uh, people or companies that don't move quickly, they're not agile, they're not repurposing stuff, they're kind of hoping for uh, Don Draper to come back to the office. <laughs> yeah, that's what they're waiting for, for sure. Yeah, and it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, and we know this in the same way that we know people get co-working when they come through the doors, not when they see it online or when they hear about it, they get mm -hmm. it when they try it. Um, these folks are starting to see that it's not just, you know, the the space needs to be rented. In the same way that we know as operators, you could have 140 co-working members and maybe 20 of them are in the space today. Um, but if that it continues to be true, that space is not going to be around for very long. That It's the feeling of being in community. It's the socializing that we leave the house for. And so if the space isn't also animated, curated, uh, if people aren't being educated, if there isn't opportunity and networking going on, if there isn't some kind of newness to the experience, um, people get bored. It's like going to a mall, like a fancy office. Like, ooh, we can, we can all use Airbnb. We can work from anywhere we want. We can travel the world. 
um, a beautiful building is is not the be all end all. And mm-hmm. most people have beautiful desks, beautiful offices, beautiful space in their home now where they can sit and work, even if it might be small and it might be uh, compact or or based on productivity. Um, we also know that that we can change our minds and we can go into a co working space for the afternoon or or a couple of days a week. I hear these folks talking about adding hospitality, and to them that means coffee service and maybe a receptionist. Um, I, I hear about these amenities and, you know, people are, are bringing in beer kegs and ping pong tables and climbing walls. And um, I actually really appreciate the way I'm seeing some of the indie operators pivoting. They're asking customers, they're asking Entrepreneurs are asking small businesses what they need and want, where the gaps are for them. And this is how we're coming about, finding these spaces, um, creating uh, podcasting rooms, creating studios for for production, creating a meeting experience um, for team building. Um, We're thinking differently about the ways we come together, why we come together, what we come together for. Mm -hmm. And I think... um, the people who will succeed through this are the ones who are holding space and transforming space into more of a, a sort of the placemaking effort. Um, right. It's, it's, well, I've always had an issue just with commercial real estate in general and the idea of ownership and the land and, and the idea of, of, of sustainability and, and um, what the purpose of, of real estate is rather than holding space for all these incredible things we could do as a human race. Yeah, it's sad. Owning space. It's uh, sad to see the underutilization of space. By, by, by that I mean for myself, I think you agree that it's not about whether someone sat at their desk or not. It's about whether that person even sat at a desk or any other piece of furniture is like loving life, you know. Yeah. Buildings should facilitate social betterment and engagement and um, and happiness. The built environment, of course, you know, we've kind of adopted a legacy, uh, perhaps a cultural legacy in North America that was post-industrialist, you know, retooling of the machinery. Um, but it's very interesting now to see two things for me. One is the machinery being wielded at home, which I think is a shitty thing. Like, look, for everyone who's at home listening to this or watching this, uh, free the shackles. <laughs> Go out for a walk. Like, I, I do hope that people aren't, you know, feeling like indentured laborers at home, mm-hmm. um, despite having won some efficiencies of, of time management, you know. Yep. Uh, it should make work, no matter what you do, should, from my perspective, enrich your life. Uh, and, um, and sometimes, yeah, you gotta, you gotta suffer to get a paycheck to be able to sustain yourself, to figure out what you can do better. But I think we're at a kind of a a reckoning in North America. This hasn't happened in the rest of the world. Like I talk to any people that I know around the world about this whole refusal to work thing. It's people aren't refusing to work here, but they're, they're kind of refusing to suffer in order to work. And, um, and, and that's an interesting thing in how it's played out, especially in Toronto, where people are saying, I don't want to ride the subway for an hour and a half or be stuck on a highway when gas costs twice what it used to. And I've got, you know, inflation to deal with in a recession. So I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, employees are kind of saying uh, or starting to think about lifestyle, yeah, work lifestyle. Yeah, and granted, there there is some privilege in that too. Not everyone can, you know, stop doing labor that they dislike in order to pursue Amen. something they like. I'm How? always running around with a screwdriver. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but um, but I 
And, and some of it is location specific. You're never going to be, you know, working remotely if your job is hands on. Um, but, but yeah, I think I think that is really what I'm talking about in terms of the ground shaking and and people saying. If I'm going to work, if I'm going to sacrifice an hour commuting, if I'm going to dedicate this time, which I'd rather be spending with my family, I'm going to be paid well for it. I'm, there's going to be some benefit, like incredible benefits for health or dental insurance or something for my family. I'm going to have vacation time so that I can actually take the time off. And I think people are just, you know, done with that sort of hustle culture just for the just for the sense of hustling because that's mm-hmm. what we should be doing. And, and if you're hustling, you're hustling because you're working hard for a period to achieve a goal, whatever that might be. Um, not just because that's what we're supposed to be doing. And I'm hoping that a lot of things about the way work was broken will change. And I'm hoping that we don't just recreate the old toxic ways of the office in these co-working communities and these shared communities. I'm hoping that our structures or the hierarchical structures that we had in old offices and old work culture change and that uh, co-working spaces could really become uh, leading by example, really, and I think we have been for a long time, how to create more inclusive, more diverse, more equitable, more accessible space. And that's really what um, my work this last couple of years with the Coworking Idea Project has been about. Um, because we have that ability. We are smaller operators, usually, the indies. Um, we can pivot quickly. Um, and these are the folks who are thriving right now because they have pivoted to be able to meet these new demands from the membership. And um, and Let's, we are seeing more women working in the spaces. We're seeing yeah. more folks that, that have um, disabilities or accessibility issues or mobility issues working from the spaces. We're seeing working parents mm-hmm. uh, launching businesses, which used to be prohibitive um, in the idea of of working extra hours or renting an office. Um, all of these things are within reach now, and they weren't even done 15 years ago. So. Two things. First thing, uh, co-working idea. Break mm-hmm. it down. Yeah, so the Idea Project's an informal alliance um, made up of many of us who are longtime co-working operators, but also representatives from uh, co-working collectives and alliances around the world, uh, even collaborative consultants, like anyone's welcome. Mm -hmm. And uh, what unites us is that we want to work to make the industry more inclusive, diverse, equitable, and accessible, and that's what the idea stands for. And um, each month we issue a challenge to co-working operators um, or alliances, and um, ask them to launch a conversation around a topic, you know, whether it be at the collective level or in the space with their members, um, and really engage their community in these topics. Like, how, how do we hold space for you in the community? What does a more inclusive space look like to you? Like, where are we doing well and where do we need to improve? And I think having a dialogue at many levels about these issues are really what's needed to make change on a large scale and that the impact we're making in these communities, you know, hundreds of communities around the world each month, that's rippling out and, mm-hmm. and that's having an impact in how those members carry themselves and do business in the world and exist. They have this knowledge now to start. So that's a, a project I feel pretty passionately about. I think it's fascinating when you when you really kind of peel back the onion and say um, – the communities that form in co-working spaces, which are made up of diverse um, peoples, mm-hmm. that could be the simplest expression of that could be people from different um, types of job and different organizations, let alone their personal lives and identities. Totally. Um, that diversity, which breeds a kind of unique culture or enables a unique culture uh, that shares values and um, which allow people to do things like, you know, 
really physically just share space and not be tripping over each other and their bags in the hallways and stuff is really interesting because I think there's a lot of lessons from co-working and from us indie co-working uh, brands and, and operators to feed back into the redevelopment of the workplace for corporate entities and large enterprises that are rethinking real estate. Um, you know, on one hand, you've got this kind of like small stakeholder perspective or SMB perspective of like, which happened during the pandemic of like, let's cut OPEX and kill our lease because everyone's happier at home and we'll give them a thousand dollar task chair. Um, now I think we're hearing a lot more people reaching out to say at Startwell, reaching out to say, okay, we're done with that. That's cool. Like people have their space at home, but we want to like really re-socialize them a little bit. They're feeling alone. We're seeing attrition. And this is another thing in the tech community, especially a lot of attrition. Mm -hmm. You've got every type of organization facing realities of economics that they ignored for the last two years. And so layoffs are becoming the norm. Uh, but the converse to that is that, uh, you know, people are kind of looking for alternatives as employees. And they're if they're at home, they have maybe more time and more privacy to be able to, like, have calls with recruiters. So it's really, really interesting to see people now representing organizations. And, and hopefully some of uh, f those folks are in our audience listening and watching um, who are thinking about how do you increase engagement um, at organizations in the rebuild of physical space or the rental of physical space when it's utilized for team building. Mm -hmm. And I think the lessons from co-working are simply that it has to be what you just described, which is an inclusive space where everyone has a, a kind of a sense of purchasing power parity, you know? And, um, and we've seen that with organizations like Shopify. So we were working with Shopify on some experiments in the last year where we hosted like 150 meeting days, different groups, different organizations, different locations. Like we had people flying in from all over the place. They're all kind of working for Shopify. Um, but they all had the same budget. So kind of one group, not real estate, I forget what group it was within Shopify decreed that, you know, your their spend allotment had to be X, uh, but it was price per head. So any meeting had almost the same per person budget to figure out, you know, hotels, food, entertainment, and they were allowed to do anything they wanted. And it was like, okay, all of you shop folk, as they call themselves, can go and do stuff, whatever you want, when you get together, and self-organize. And we saw a lot of cool, happy people, you know. Um, and it was such an interesting experiment because, you know, and it's continued on. They've had some bureaucracy refactoring that into, like, whatever they need to internally in terms of procurement and budgeting and so on, uh, which has, in, you know, hindered, I think, the freedoms of some people to be able to, like, make bookings happen um, at certain locations that they want. But interesting things, like some teams would be here for meetings, and then in the afternoon they'd have rented out a theater and have private movie screenings because they all wanted to watch the same movie. You know, I think that can be work. Yeah. I, I love the way things are shifting for the corporates right now. And, and I think it's also something that as indie operators, we were afraid of these larger groups in the early days in particular, um, like a large team coming into our space because they would dominate the culture in the mm -hmm. space. And we start to see everything we were building with the independents or smaller teams 
um, being overwhelmed by the corporate culture that this one company had. And so, you know, in a sense, over time, we've built up this a, a bit of fear of these larger teams. But you're right, the way they're working uh, now, they're really enjoying the time they're spending together when they are spending it together. Yeah. They're being really intentional about their time. And I see this through my role at DustPass a lot. A lot of these larger organizations, they are just waking up. They're just starting to realize people are not going back to the office. They're not going back to the office. We are not going back to the office. I don't know how many times <laughs> say, it again, say it again. We're not going back to the office. Um, and I think they have it right in terms of, you know, handing the funds over to their employees to be able to decide how to spend them. That could look like giving them a budget on a platform like a DustPass or whatever that might be. So it wait, might let's, be. let's pause and, and just break it down for people that don't know what DustPass is. What is DustPass? DustPass is a, an international network of amazing indie spaces. Um, we're, we're on there. We're yes, one of them. Star Wars one of them. <laughs> um, and, uh, and anyone can really be on it if you've got an amazing space. And um, anyone can book. We have a lot of corporate teams that book, so they'll roll it out to all their employees, for example. But you can also just be an independent worker or a small business and join as well. And so you can book meeting rooms, desk day passes. You can book day offices or you know offices by the month, for example. But the focus is on shorter term. It's mm -hmm. a drop-in. It's a part-time. A few hours or days. Totally. Yeah. yeah, and you get what you need. You need access to a studio. Need access, and so I've been using platform DustPass, for example, but but platforms like DustPass for a very long time, uh, because I work in multiple cities, and I like to try different spaces, and I want to meet people, and I want to tap into the local community, entrepreneurial as well as just what is there to do in this amazing yeah. city? That's where I tap in when I go. So, um, it's always made sense for remote workers and independents who travel for work. Um, but now it's making more sense for distributed teams who are only coming together one day a week or one day a month on site. And exactly that. They're having these really incredible meetings um, and they're experiencing, they're just starting to experience what uh, people who were working from home previously would say to us coming into a co-working space for the first time. Um, I'm productive, but, you know, I could be more productive. I'm, I'm lonely. Um, you know, dismantling loneliness, uh, you know, has become one of our main missions as an industry. Mm. Um, and I think we've become more and more aware of that over the last couple of years, particularly through the pandemic. We've seen so many people dealing with mental health issues and, and the, the fallout is just beginning from the isolation that we've all right, experienced right. through this time. It's a time. long tail, right? Exactly, exactly. And so these organizations are just starting to understand that there's more than, you know, a meeting happening when we gather and I think you understand that too with the your work with the gathering and what you're doing here it's mm -hmm. very well um, it's the coming together that's yeah. really important and so I also produce a lot of events for the, the co-working industry and for leaders in social impact and it's really about the journey to get there together we just hosted a, a pilgrimage for change makers in, in Memphis the, the, oh. the journey of getting from where you are to where you're going of being together and then taking that home and and, and um, implementing it in your community and so that's always been something that's really important to me and i think i think in the years to come we'll see more of that and the teams are starting to do this themselves mm -hmm. yeah. yeah and how okay so desk pass how are the teams that come onto desk pass finding their way to desk pass to then discover spaces that are unique and different and I think a lot of them are looking for a meeting, to be honest. They're just thinking of it as an Airbnb, like, I need a space for a okay. meeting. And it's they, like a marketplace 
to be able to book something. Yeah, and it's and it's really easy. So it's just like super quick for someone, and they they can easily compare different spaces in their region or prices for this nine person meeting room or whatever mm-hmm. it is you're looking for. Um, so you know that searchability, that function, and it's something we're used to. I mean, we do this for Airbnb, we do this for Expedia. We list how we look things up. So it makes sense uh, to folks to search that way. But then once they use it, they realize like, oh wow, there are all these co working spaces. They go in for a meeting, they see people that work there all the time, they start to meet some of the members or they meet other teams that are using the space and um, so then they start increasing their usage and and you'll see a lot of folks um, you know will pick a space that they really love they'll try a bunch and pick one that's kind of in the middle for their team to meet at or one that's near their home mm-hmm. and sometimes um, the, the company is paying for a certain amount of use for the team to gather but then on their own the the individual is is signing up for a membership that's because cool when they're working from home some days they want to be working from the space that's super cool yeah um, and DeskPass is global. Yes. Yes. I don't even know the current number of countries. I should know this, but I think we're, we're at about 1,400 spaces on the network right now. So from that network and from the user base that you're privy to, are there trends that you're noticing in terms of that kind of self-organization story? Like people using, because am I right in saying that DeskPass enables organizations to kind of almost like pre-purchase availability and then it's spent as credits or whatever by the staff? There's no credit system. So so right now, uh, the overhaul that we've just done makes it so that anyone can just sort of book whatever they need using the platform, and it's all pay-as-you-go. So there's no commitment. It's just pick a space, need That's a space. paid to central billing on the account? Or? Yeah, for teams, it's a lot easier because okay. we can do one central so all their employees can be booking. You can also, you know break it down by team so they each have different access or features or maybe they're in different countries but yeah yeah, you can make it really easy and so it makes it easy for the team to put all their employees on the platform and say use it whenever you need a desk to focus or whenever you're doing uh, sales tours book a meeting space all along your way and there's a lot of, of large companies that I can't actually talk about yet because they haven't announced this publicly, but have been doing pilots or trials with DustPass and, and it's going really well with their team and they're adding more and more members and and eventually we'll be able to talk about these organizations, but you'll see they're they're some of the top companies in the world putting all of their employees on the platform so that they will have access to this when they need it. It's on mm-hmm. demand. So No, it's super interesting. I mean, we see this coming from all seeing the demand coming from all over um, the spectrum in terms of, um, let's say, size of company and mm-hmm. industry focus and everything here on campus at Startwell because we really like doubled down on this whole meeting thing, right? So it's not, for us, it's not getting around a boardroom table that's a meeting. Mm-hmm. A meeting is simply just uh, an opportunity to collaborate where people come together. Yeah. Um, and so we've built out all these different spaces that merge like lounge, dining, Everything has fridges. You can bring your drinks and put it in the fridge. If you want to toast at the end of the meeting, go for it, you know. Um, and it's really, really interesting because I think the what we're finding with every single group that comes to meet here is that they're happier to have met at Startwell. A big part of it is the logistical piece. Um, so even a platform like DeskPass takes part of the logistics out, which might be just simply procurement, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I think the idea of people belonging to a space and knowing that they can belong when they want to um, is a new angle on co-working too. This on-demand resource, because to be honest, look, for anyone listening that's interested in commercial real estate, the truth of the matter is uh, the business model is, is not great. You know, like for example, I will lease real estate at a certain price and commit to that price for 10 years. 
Okay, so I'm on the hook for millions of dollars to lease the space to then make it available on a day rate, you know, for people that might come or might not. And it's gone from subleasing, which was conventional co-working, particularly, you know, you de-risk your uh, intermediary position by having a chunk of real estate be small offices. Small offices would pay your operating costs, and then everything above that would be a delta, which is you know, a hybrid or co-working, like drop-in hot desks and stuff, maybe event space, meeting space. But everything's shifted because, at least in a city like Toronto, real estate costs, at least unless I wanted to port to a different building and, and be in a sublet situation, my real estate costs have stayed the same through the pandemic, right? Um, but what I've gone from is, say, having maybe like 50 organizations uh, support my business as clients, to about like 5,000 organizations with no expectation of recurring booking, mm -hmm. you know, uh, not one that I would rely my business model on. So it's kind of a scary proposition to, to be able to cater to this market segment. I definitely think it's like the ask of the future yeah. and every organization is looking for flexibility and on demand. Um, so it's an interesting time to be providing space in this way uh, and not everyone can do it. And not everyone is is willing to to look at the risk profile of the offering and say it's something I'm comfortable with. Yeah, and I don't think people have to take on the risk alone. In some cases, uh, purchase of the building makes sense. In some cases, partnership with the landlord uh, makes sense. In some cases, um, there are, there are other ways to to mitigate that risk, but. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the older models were based on the anchor tenant and then that was the sure shot and everything else was crazy. And if we can get some bums in seats in the co-working space, we're doing great. Um, I've always approached it a bit differently. Every space I've built has been multifaceted. So I've always had an event space. I've always had a cafe. I've always had a maker space, uh, artist production studios, um, in addition to the co-working. And co-working has always been split into a couple of models for me because of the way people work. And mm -hmm. as someone who's neurodivergent, the way I work throughout the day changes even. And so... Um, yeah, like the, the open co-working space, so like open plan office, uh, the um, flexible lounge space, all the different ways we like to work, sitting and, and gathering and privately. Um, and then also some some dedicated offices for those teams who really do need to huddle, like they would be taking up a meeting room all day long if they were out in the regular right. space. So right. um, I've always been thinking about how these different elements work to feed each other and how they complement the experience for the person who comes to the space. And so if I can't have a coffee, have a good conversation, stay for an event, book a meeting, work for a bit, lounge around in a space. Why would I go there? I mm. can do most of that thing, most of those things from home. I'm coming to the space to have all of them, some access to some equipment, some really cool people I wouldn't see otherwise. Um, and and that's more than hospitality that folks are talking about today, what they're bringing. It's animating a community. It's actually being a community organizer. And they're missing the most essential piece, which is what we do as indie operators. I think it's so interesting because I haven't really said this yet or, or articulated it this way, but I, I, I'm willing to boldly go where I haven't gone before and, and say it here on the mic that it sounds to me, it seems to me quite plausible that the culture crisis that's affecting North America right now in this post-pandemic reality, especially with this call, like, I don't want to go to work. I don't want to travel work. I, I'll do my work, but I don't want to go there thing. Um, and what you just articulated is is really really interesting because I think it's it's about the failure of our urban 
spaces. Like North American cities typically are ugly, uncomfortable, difficult to get to and navigate through. Um, there's looming fe- feelings of unsafety that you know will stigmatize various neighborhoods. Um, there's all sorts of kind of like bad things to do with our cities. And they were the bulk of them built like in the 1950s or the kernel of them, right? In this kind of like very office towery Lloyd Wright kind of put it up, put the people in the cubicles, make the honeybee uh, buzz. And, um, and it's funny because I think there's this kind of like resurgence of kind of an artistically minded impetus for wanting more from the place mm-hmm. but maybe employers and and the the spaces that they use for for employing uh you know human resources in a very functional description uh is taking the fall in the in the popular mainstream media in North America for these larger issues that are at play like yeah conventional 1950s cubicle offices suck um and because they suck they're not going to breed a culture of inclusiveness and 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 mirth um but then the whole city is structured around those spaces this has never been a lounging city like i remember even when i moved here from new york in 2005 there were playgrounds that were closed on sundays they mm-hmm. literally put a sign up you can't play in the playground on sunday what are you talking about it's a playground mm-hmm. but that was a whole like christianic thing you had to be in church you know so even the lcbo most of them were not open you couldn't sell for all our international listeners, um, the LCBO is the Liquor Control Board of Ontario. We have centralized alcohol purchasing for the province of Ontario uh, that is state-owned, regulated, and is a real behemoth of a monopoly on the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of its retail locations are where Ontarians buy liquor until the pandemic when anyone with a license to serve it in restaurants, for example, became bodegas um, you know, to try and kind of hustle up some bucks, and that stayed. Uh, so there's some reforms happening in liquor control in, in the state but or in the province, but it's it was a very puritanical kind of society in a way, you know, not long ago, like not even 20 years ago, mm-hmm. when co-working was getting started. And mm-hmm. I think co-working offered people, um, especially these like indie spaces that we're talking about, uh, offered people a break from that outside reality. You came inside and the indoor um, space planning it was, it was not space money, it was placemaking, right? This is the word you used. And, and again, that was um, a word that was coined by the organization I worked at in New York called the Project for Public Spaces. So the, the thought there, of course, for anyone new to placemaking is that you take a space, you make it inclusive, uh, you make it comfortable and sensitive to the needs of the community that shares it, and it's a place. It's, it has emotive connection, um, and people have that connection to each other through it. So... These interior domains that were crafted to enable communities to form, you know, ergo like co-working, indie co-working. Um, yeah, I think harken of this kind of like larger critique of, of the urban space. And, and in Toronto, we're seeing that where like the cities, you know, uh, people want more from the city. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of my approach is sort of an urban planning approach too, in terms of what the space needs to have to feel good and and definitely throw back to Jane Jacobs on that one and, and how a space makes you feel and um, and the and the who the just the decision making and um, 
to really be at the community level, I think mm -hmm. is, is what I'm trying to say. And, um, and how it all comes together to create a space of belonging. And you're right, it's that ownership of the space, that investment into the space, that feeling like I can be here, I'm part of this community, I can just spend time in this space. And I realized this as I was taking a group through um, the Crosstown Concourse in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. It's basically a 1.3 million square foot redevelopment project in the old Sears warehouse. And they've built a vertical city. Mm. So um, there's, I mean, oh God, if you name something, it's in that building, uh, co-working spaces, there's a college, there's a radio station, mm. um, a YMCA, there's an entire uh, church health program, um, a church, a synagogue. Uh, I mean, the atriums are beautiful, event spaces, all the arts organizations are based there, robotics labs, it's crazy. Yeah, absolutely everything. Um, but the but there are still people who live in Memphis, and this building has been open. It must have taken almost 20 years to get from design to the space it is now, mm -hmm. who, who don't know that that space is for them, who, who don't know what's in that building, um, who haven't walked around in this massive public space where everyone is welcome and it's fully open um, almost all the time to the public. People live on site as well. There's affordable housing as well as... Um, that sounds incredible. I mean, it's place. absolutely, absolutely amazing. But but I guess what I'm trying to say is there are still folks in the community that don't know that space was built for them with right. city funds, with all these different co-investors sure. and partnerships and as a nonprofit uh, to, to be a place for the community. And I see this at 312 Main in, in Vancouver, another space that I worked on. Um, not everyone knows that that space was built for them. Um, it was built with them and, and, and not you know, a top-down model, it was based on consultation with 300 community groups. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the the members of the spaces really need to feel that that ownership. They need to know um, that that is their space, that they are welcome, that they belong. Um, and they actually can have an influence and an impact on how that space is run, organized, what the objectives are, the kinds of facilities they have access to, the kinds of people that they might welcome into the space. Um, that's all all up for negotiation in a... In a um, genuine co-working community yeah and i look at that here with, with you know something that i've always done uh since the first start well that no one knows about um which was a thousand square foot retail storefront on st Clair avenue down the road from my house uh it was all very lazy for me to, to start that business but also it didn't make sense because the neighborhood didn't want to pay for it memberships but it born uh it, it, from it was born uh, our king street mega location the cool thing is, since day one, I've always been retail first. We need retail access. We need to, you know, occupy entire buildings. Uh, it gives people a sense of place and a sense of uh, the buildings themselves have an openness by walking in from the street and not taking some elevator to the 25th floor. Um, very important to be connected to the street because often cases, a lot of our users or customers that come in for the day or a few hours, they may never experience retail proximity in mm -hmm. their neighborhood. They might live in a condo building on the 25th floor. They might also come from a suburban context um, and, uh, and you know, buy everything online. I don't know, whatever the, the, the kind of reason is. So it's really interesting for me to protect the urban um, feeling for pedestrian reality by having retail access. And then also the other side of it is, um, I really have been uh, very, I don't know how I would express this, but in choosing a site or sites for Startwell and buildings and even growing this footprint in this neighborhood, 
I've been very um, focused on being an ambassador for the neighborhood, for the people that come to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because the whole thing of like groups coming together for experiences, mostly it's a culinary thing, but like everyone who comes here is going to have lunch or dinner or go for drinks afterwards. And accessing this place by it being downtown, but still, you know, um, surrounded by residential is so important. Of course, mixed use in urban topography in general is so important for mm-hmm. inclusiveness. But like people love the fact that they can come here, do their thing, have all those hospitality things you mentioned, like we have baristas downstairs and stuff, have their cappuccino, not whip out their wallet, but that they can also very comfortably leave their stuff behind and like go have lunch and have some great tacos or whatever food they want, any food, and walk back in 10 minutes and no one's touched their stuff, it's safe, and they've, wow, they've had a whole experience of Toronto that doesn't exist except for here, you know? So I, I think it's really, really important that these, like, that people experience neighborhoods as furtive environments for commercial enterprise. Yeah, it's interesting. The The tone sort of changes when you walk into a communal area in a co-working space. It's almost like that's the community that I would build if I got to build this city. And we're seeing it inside instead of outside in a public forum. But we're creating what feels like public space, this common right, area. Right, that's, that's important, yeah. Yeah, and I think that really speaks to the themes around uh, collaboration and community building that are really at the core of the co-working values, the co-working movement, because mm-hmm. we talk about co-working now as an industry, Um, I really, really am thinking about the movement here and the intention behind why we get together. And it's that common space. It's that it's that common experience. It's um, a common understanding and then also systems of support. Um, And we do this and sometimes in a top down model in a co-working community, if we have experience with mentoring new startups, if we have experience in these um, startup cultures and, and we're helping to accelerate, to incubate, of course, we're doing all these things in, in sort of the traditional top-down model, but what's great about the co-working community is that they play these roles for each other mm. and that members are equal. Like you said, there is not really a hierarchy of membership in the space. If you're a member, you're a member and you have the same sort of access right. and, and um, right to belong and, and to be and and uh, influence the the culture of the space as well. And, and um, I think it's that common... Uh, the systems of support around starting new ventures and and just being there to celebrate wins with each other, um, to to go through the losses together. Mm-hmm. That's what makes a really resilient community and a resilient neighborhood. And we know a lot of our members are are located near this space. Like proximity makes a lot of sense for indie co working um, members. But um, we are strengthening the neighborhood with our spend, but also in just those meaningful connections we're making between people. Because I see folks still to this day who are members of my co-working space because I still live in the same neighborhood as my co-working space operated for 10 years, 10 years ago. Right. And um, these people still live there and they're still contributing in incredible ways through their businesses, through their families, through their volunteering in the community. And a lot of these connections were made in the foundry buildings. And that's something that... You know, it's partially the building design and the way we invite people in and the common public space outdoors and things like that and the intentional way we hosted. Um, but a lot of it is the the serendipitous moments between people who wouldn't, you know, knock on their neighbor's yeah. door and ask them, what are you working on? What do you do for a living? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> what are you doing this weekend? So, um, yeah, I think we're actually playing a really incredible role in strengthening the fabric in our communities and a lot of the times co-working operators uh, don't get the credit they deserve as community organizers. They're really just seen as entrepreneurs or 
you know, they're in commercial real estate and that's yeah. the furthest thing from what we're actually doing. Yeah, and a big part of it is, of course, without participating in that community and participating in the experience of these spaces, it's difficult to understand what participation gives mm -hmm. people. Um, and it's a tough thing to put on the website, you know? So that's part of that, going back to your anecdote, kind of full circle, is like someone could work in a WeWork and not know what co-working is. Yeah. And then go into a co-working space and wonder why they're a member of WeWork. So... You know, it's the snake eating its tail. <laughs> yeah. But I'm I'm glad we're at a point now where I think we can start calling what we're all doing working. I've been saying this for a long time that one day co-working will just be working and then we can actually start referring to co-working as this verb, this action we take while we're in these collaborative spaces. Right, when we're in right. these third places. Um, we're co working while we're here. Um and we can co-work between organizations, we can co work between industries. There is co working to be done all around the world. Even within industry, like within organizations, that's the other thing. Totally, like totally. we're doing a lot of interesting kind of activations or whatever you want to call it, where a single company with so many different working teams will drop in a start well, and they'll all they might not have met. Like especially now, two years of of kind of closeted, uh, you know, home dwelling working people come here and they might not know their coworkers. Like they've never met them in person. Yeah, um, and they're all different teams, but we would have like 150 people, 200 people here for a day or two days or three days. Um, and they're getting to know each other for the first time and they're discovering who each other are and they have social inter interactions and then they have meetings that are cross team. And it's such a powerful thing, um, that, uh, that it's, it's such a fulfilling thing to play that role. And so I see a lot of potentiality for, you know, even internal, culture at single organizations to be advanced and supported by co-working. Yeah, it's actually what a lot of the consulting I do these days is around like larger organizations like universities, um, city, community economic development offices reach out to me at Creative Blueprint a lot just to talk about like, what is it that you're doing? What's this magic I see in the spaces? Like, how are you actually creating all of this? And, and a lot of it is not that we're meddling. You know, there are community animators and cultivators in the space and their job is to make introductions and things, of course, but that's not the magic. The magic is that we all have collectively decided when we come to this space, it's a collaborative ownership. We're all responsible for maintaining this culture in some ways. Mm -hmm. And that's not what we do when we go to the office. Um, that's not how we show up to work. We're, we show up to be part of this thing someone else built for us to be a part of. And and what I really love about the space is people showing up as themselves, bringing themselves to work, bringing their values to their work, bringing their own community and their own background and their own culture um, into the work and, and creating this new collaborative culture where we help each other. We want each other to succeed. And, and, and we are competing against uh, old versions of ourselves rather than each other. I love that. Mm -hmm. It's been a wonderful time having you on the podcast. Um, if uh, if anyone wants to reach out to you about the work that you do, about consultant, consultancy or desk pass or anything else. Yeah. Uh, do you want to drop some links? Yeah. Creativeblueprint.ca is where you can find me and, and uh, links to some of the other projects. And then I would also suggest coworkingcanada.com. And the uh, Coworking Idea project is coworkingidea.org. Awesome. Thanks. Again, so much fun. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thanks for spending your time with us.